The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello and welcome back, slightly sooner than usual, to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. In our last podcast, we discussed in depth the huge retrospective of Andy Warhol's work at the Whitney in New York. In this podcast, we continue to explore Warhol's life and art. We'll hear about another New York exhibition of his vast work, Shadows. But first up is the artist Jeremy Deller. As a young man, he was invited by Warhol to the factory in New York, and he's continued to explore some of the key elements of Warhol's work in his own practice. Jeremy is with me now. Jeremy, if we could begin with your first experiences of Andy Warhol, were you a sort of teenager looking at his work somewhere? It would have definitely been probably through the Marilyn, through maybe seeing that at Tate, yeah. as it was then, and uh, just being aware of him through the Velvet Underground, through photographs of him, just through him being a, quite a dominant character, really, and uh, hearing stories about him and being intrigued by how he dressed. I was a bit of a goth, so as a sort of sixteen-year-old, so he had a quite a goth look actually. I mean, the hair wasn't black, obviously, but just the whole look and wearing black. But he, you know, he did wear black, but he was just a very appealing character. Were you sort of because re- I certainly my first experiences of Warhol were sort of reading about him by musical artists talking about him in music magazines and stuff like that. Did you, did you, were you sort of art conscious as a young man? I was art conscious in that respect, yes. And so I did, I knew about him. I think it's, it's probably really photographs of him which were more uh, intriguing. Him with all these funny looking people and doing stuff and looking very blank and with the wig and in these situations and so on. So I think he's very appealing. You know, the sort of dressing up aspect of him was very appealing. And also the, his identity, creating this identity for himself. If you're an adolescent, you kind of you're quite interested in that aspect of people when they do that. And the fact that he, he looked like he was having a really good time, even though you never could, he didn't really smile that much. But it just looked like he was misbehaving in public when he was out. Everything he did was a sort of form of rebellion, really. And his whole life was a was essentially a rebellion against normality. And I think that, that, I think, is something that we have to really... That's a really important part of him, really. And so when you were um, studying art history at the Courtauld, were you already very contemporary art-focused at that stage? or No, I wasn't. I mean, I studied, art history at the Courtauld was not contemporary art. It was absolutely, it was the absolute opposite. So it was an interest I had anyway. Right. So... I was aware of contemporary art, and I was really aware of the characters like Gilbert and George and Warhol, and you know these big people, men mainly, and they were intriguing characters. And in a way, Gilbert and George took a lot from Warhol, I would argue, in terms of their personas. They're almost not exactly robotic demeanor, but they're they're, they're sort of blank demeanors, and just like watching and and so on, and and also just the work looked Warholian, I would argue, you know, with the colors and and the techniques. So, yes, I was interested in artists who were characters as well. And so you went to the Anthony Doffet exhibition in 1986 and actually met Warhol there. Well, he he was doing sign, he was signing things and everyone rushed to the table and got things signed. And I did. I got a few things signed. And then afterwards, one of his entourage said, oh, come, come, come to the hotel on Thursday night. This is on a Tuesday and just hang out. 
I couldn't quite, I couldn't believe it really. I thought, well, I will do that actually. I'm not, I'm, I'm just going to go and do that. I took a friend with me and we'd had this sort of funny couple of hours with Warhol and his entourage, these people that were sitting around. And Can you sort of set the scene? So it's in the Ritz, right? It's in the Ritz. It's, uh, we dressed up a little bit, me and my mate Chris, in suits and sort of funny hats and whatnot. And we took a bag of sort of props with us, like hats and sort of wigs and all sorts of things. We just didn't know what to expect, really. I think we were both a bit nervous. And we went to the suite at the Ritz he had and we walked in. And there were just a bunch of sort of middle-aged men sitting around watching Benny Hill with the sound turned down and uh, a Roxy Music Greatest Hits tape playing in a ghetto blaster, which, if you think about it, is a pretty good sort of installation in its own own right. And there he was with these men who looked a bit bored, really. strange. And they were just sitting around waiting for something to happen. And, and we were what was with the entertainment, basically. And we went there and we were chatting, had our picture taken, sort of put on funny these funny hats and just mucked about. We literally just mucked about. And then... Um, There's a funny photo, actually, of you with Warhol and you've got a New York Yankees baseball That's cap actually on. in New York. Oh, right, OK. There's but. another one. There's some other, some other photographs of us all sort of like piles of blokes, just sort of like arms around each other, yeah. like wearing funny clothes and that. It was quite innocent, really, and uh, thankfully. And so we just... Um, then he said, oh, come out to the factory. I'm doing a TV show. Just come out and whatever. We just, I just again I just thought well I'm not going to turn this one down I will regret this not doing this We've got whatever happens I'm going to regret not doing it so we went out that summer and spent two weeks hanging around the factory working on this MTV show he was doing being filmed for it and just being just really hanging around going out a lot so we saw him there and he would just wander around the factory. That's how it seemed. I mean, he was actually working very hard, I think. But he was just he was just wandering about in these paint-spattered black jeans and a black polo neck, chatting to people and whatnot. Were you conscious of the sort of myth of the factory or the, or the stories about the factory at that stage? Well, I mean, yeah. if you think about it, the factory as an idea and with all those people in it, it's just how, as a teenager, you want to live your life, basically, in this big room with all these funny people and rock and roll and sort of glamorous women and whatnot. And it just seemed like that's how you want life to be. It just looked amazing. And so the factory wasn't like that in 1986, but it was still super exciting to be there. Can you describe sort of some of the spaces? Because it was, it was a, it was a, it, by that stage, there were sort of multiple rooms. Is well, that there right? was a big, it was a big house, a big office building, basically a nice old building, but it was, it was an office building, about four floors. There's a roof, big roof you'd walk through the factory and you'd get you'd get into another building which was interview so there was that as well which is the magazine that yes produce. so you know he had his magazine there he had a film production he had his office he had his office uh which was full of boxes and books and magazines which there wasn't even a chair in it it was just full you know he had nowhere he didn't you know his office was unusable basically but it was it was a sort of office, of uh, a relaxed office environment, I would say, if that makes sense. Some stuffed animals around. Bridget Berlin was on the desk. But, you know, you were there. You uh, you were in that place. It was very exciting. Did, did that mark the moment when you made that shift from your studying art history and, and you make that shift into thinking there's a possibility of being an artist? Well, possibility is a good word because it just showed what was possible what what was actually possible in the world as an artist you basically did whatever you wanted and he did whatever he wanted that's why it, it seemed like he had complete freedom it wasn't actually the case when you read the diaries and find out about what was going on at that time he's quite frustrated but 
it just looked like he could do whatever he wanted. And uh, yes, it just made the world of like, Baroque altarpieces, much like I love them, just not particularly, they couldn't really compete with that, with the, with contemporary life. And so I, I did go back to college and I finished my degree. Not that I knew what to do with that experience of being there, really. I didn't really know what. It took some time to process in a way, but I just knew I'd been ruined by it uh, in terms of an art, art history. My life in art history had just been destroyed by going to see him. And one of the striking connections, I think, between your work and, and Andy Warhol's life and work is is this connection with, with music and particularly rock and pop music. Mm. Obviously, there's Warhol's famous covers for The Velvet Underground yes. and Rolling Stones, Sticky Fingers, etc., etc. Yes, yes. But also just that sort of um, spiritual connection between art and music. And it seems to me that's right at the heart of what you do. Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, that existed before, though, really. You know, the, the music, my connection to music and pop music was from the age of about four or five. So that was already there. But then seeing an artist that was seemed to be part of that as well and was interested in it was you know, quite influential. So um, I was always happy to know that and um but yes the music and art thing for me was always huge huge and still is i mean maybe a bit less so now so i've sort of lost touch with popular music but i still have opinions <laughs> so but uh <laughs> but yes that was you know that not having any boundaries i think was the interesting thing with him you know film magazine music art even performance in a way you know his life was a performance so that's for me that's is a great influence in that respect. And I suppose also the fact that he sort of corralled people together and into interesting situations. And, you know, you think about the films, mm. very many of them are Warhol setting up a situation and then seeing what happens. And, and you see that to a certain degree in your work as well. Yes, a little bit. I mean, they're very different situations. Yeah. <laughs> but he is, yes, he was a, a voyeur. He clearly was a voyeur of people. He wasn't really, he didn't really take part in things. And I have a little bit of that about me as well. I'm not very good at taking part in things, but I just I do like getting other people to take part in them. It's a bit of a contradiction in a way. But yes, I def, uh, there is definitely a, a, a connection in that respect. Um, Warhol obviously was an artist who uh, had a very object-based practice as well as the sort of more ephemeral or performative mm. and film-based works and stuff like that. Um, you're, I don't think of you as somebody who produces objects so much. I don't. Um, so that's a huge difference. I mean, his, his, in a way, his work was quite... A lot of it was quite traditional. It was paintings, wasn't it? And uh, and uh, I think... No, we we don't have that much in common, really. In, 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 well, I mean, I wouldn't want to compare myself anyway, but I, I just think that, yes. I mean, in a way, he's responsible for a lot of problems in the art world as well. <laughs> I think, you know, this concentration on money and this love of money and the way people work and talk about art. I mean, he, he was one of the first people to, to talk in those terms about art and um, and the way his prices have just been inflated as well. I mean, that's nothing. that's not his problem, but... And the idea that an artist wants to be famous and all that kind of stuff, that's that's unleashed many demons, you know, in, in the art world. These second-rate artists who think they can be like him. But, um, yes, he, he he did open a can of worms and then has left us to sort of work out what to do with that can of worms, I'd argue. 
Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think one of the things about Warhol was that his his understanding of those mechanisms and the uh, the sort of infrastructures of those sort of power structures, if you like, w- was much more sophisticated than he's often g- given credit for. Absolutely. I mean, he saw the whole of America from top to bottom. You know, he loved hanging out with rich people, but he sort of despised them as well. And uh, if you, when you see, he doesn't have much good to say about them when you read the diaries. And he really thought that, he was. I think he was very aware of social issues, and famously, I still don't know if it's true or not. You know, he did do the soup kitchen thing on Friday evenings at yeah. the cathedral. I don't. I just don't know if that's true or not. But well, Donna DeSalvo, the curator of the Whitney, suggests that it is true. Yeah. Well, if, yeah. It, if that's the case, then he was going to the top and the bottom of America, so he was very aware of that, and he came from a very poor background. That's why I did. I did made an exhibition about William Morris and Warhol a few years ago, yeah. and they both of them, Morris too. You know, Morris had clients who were some of the richest people in the world, but also he would travel around Britain giving lectures and talks and and meeting people who were some of the poorest people in the country, and they both were super aware of that and were kind of quite angry by it as well. Morris, it sent Morris insane, and I think it probably did that with Warhol as well. He probably was quite angry by a lot of these wealthy people and just thought they were not worthy of it, of his riches. It seemed to me that that show was a, was really trying to complicate Warhol as a as both an artist and a public figure in a way that you you've you've expressed just now what what's so contradictory about him in some ways. Mm-hmm. But 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 I think Warhol, in a way, as he's you know, especially in a sort of social media driven world, has become a kind of caricature of what Warhol actually was. And, yes, and, and you deepen the mystery. I suppose. I think depth is the thing. There was a lot more. He was a very political artist, you could argue. I mean, everyone just thinks, oh, he just liked money and that's what he was interested in. And it was all surface and he was really superficial. But actually, he was he was really a deeply, he was a very profound artist documenting the American empire. Um, you know, the, the, his, the, the, the post-war empire that was America. And he, he, was, he was their artist. And if you think about what, what was America like in the 60s and 70s, you, you look at Andy Warhol's work. You don't read a book. You look at those images almost. So I think, you know, he was absolutely a chronicler. And he was a prophet as well, like Morris. They're both prophets for the future. They both looked into the future and saw what it was going to be like. Um, Warhol basically predicted the Internet in in some respects in terms of his interests and the way he was a voracious collector and um, wanting to be everywhere all the time, meet everyone, be documented meeting everyone, his kind of collecting habits, his his wanting to document his life, to record everything. Um, I still maintain that if he was alive during the internet, he would have been one of the major players within the internet because all his obsessions are the obsessions of the internet. Meeting people, uh, yeah, so social networks, and then buying and selling things, gossip photographing yourself all those things he was doing this 20 30 years before the internet but he was the first internet artist really but what's weird now is because of the foundation you cannot photograph his work in exhibitions and his work doesn't really exist on the internet as, as you might think it would uh, so it is a huge irony which would send him <laughs> nuts i'm sure not because th- he wanted his work to be everywhere and available to everyone like morris and so um it would send him nuts thinking that his work was, was actually not very well represented on the internet. He just wouldn't be able to understand that because <laughs> it was invented for him, basically. Yeah, exactly. I mean, another thing 
that I mean, it's interesting you talking about being a goth, but I think that there is an attractiveness for lots of people in the sort of darkness of Warhol. And it's sort of, and, and again, this is a side to Warhol that's underplayed to a certain degree. Even the flower paintings, which were, I thought you did a really interesting thing in that last room of your uh, show with uh, uh, Love is Enough with, with, with William Morris and Warhol together, was that you brought the flower, paint, flower paintings and flower wallpapers together. Mm. But even the flower paintings by Warhol, you know, Ronnie Coutrone says, says they're as much about life and death as Marilyn is, and as and the and the death and disaster series are. Well, they're sort of transient, aren't they? These yeah. little peonies or whatever they were. And then he got into camouflage as well after that, which of course is about warfare. Um, but yes, I think everything for him. I think he was very aware of his own mortality, and um, yes, a, the darkness is what's appealing about him, really, isn't it? I think you need Marilyn. That's a, someone who just recently died. And then yeah. he started making the Liz portraits because she was very sick. And he probably thought, well, she's going to die. So I'll do some Liz portraits. I mean, it's quite <laughs> cynical in a way. And then the Kennedys uh, work of a portfolio made about the Kennedys and so on. And really, the, the works now that have the greatest monetary value are the death and disasters and the car crashes and uh, race riots. And so that's what we really remember him for in the 60s at least. And um, no one made a more direct comment about that situation than he did really by the race riot pictures um so i think the darkness with him was always clearly always there and his awkwardness and so on but i that that appeals to me and of course appeals to teenagers as well like i said i think you get into him very early and he sort of stays with you jeremy thanks so much for talking to me thank you when America entered World War I, President Wilson came up with the idea of issuing Liberty Bonds to raise funds and morale. Each issue of the bonds was accompanied by great fanfare in towns and cities across the country. The celebration in New York of October 1918 to promote the fourth Liberty Loan was especially spectacular, with flags of all the Allied nations displayed on Fifth Avenue. The overwhelming impact of this spectacle is perfectly caught in Theodore Earl Butler's Flag Day, which is offered at the American Art Sale in Bonhams, New York on November the 19th. As Bonham's Director of American Art, Jennifer Jacobson, says, in Flag Day, Butler paid homage to his friend, mentor and father-in-law, Claude Monet. It's a masterpiece of American Impressionism from a painter at the top of his game. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. As an accompaniment to the Warhol show at the Whitney, the Deer Art Foundation has installed his monumental work, Shadows, in a street front space at Calvin Klein's Manhattan HQ. It's a painting in multiple parts from 1978 and 1979 and it stands out as one of his most abstract and ambitious works. It's also remarkable in the way that it references many of Warhol's signature media from film and painting to photography and screen printing. Our senior editor Nancy Kenny spoke to Jessica Morgan, the director of the Deer Art Foundation and Neil Prince, the editor of the Warhol catalogue Resonate in our New York studio. First of all, could you describe the work for our listeners? So I think obviously... The unusual and immediately um, apprehendable distinction of this piece is that it's a, a very large painting in multiple parts and it wraps around you. So when you're in the room, you're literally surrounded by the painting. Um, it's a work that's characterized both by sort of very, very strident color, moments of color, also moments of um, relative um, sequences of black and white. Although I think really um, what strikes you is after this momentary impression of of uh, being within a work of art, which is itself an unusual thing with a painting, um, you're drawn to the individual canvases. And so then follows a, a sequence of looking 
canvas by canvas and moving around the room. Warhol said the paintings were mostly the same except for their colors. Was he being ironical there, or would you say that color is, in a way, the subject of the paintings? Um, no, I, I suppose, uh, you know, I think when, when people talk about this piece, they tend to uh, dwell on the fact that uh, that the relative abstraction is a somewhat unusual motif for, for Warhol. But I think once you're in the work, it really is the play between uh, both color and the, the lack of color. And then, of course, the um, perhaps somewhat unexpected, uh, very, uh, very clear painterly aspect of the canvases, yes, yes. the individual canvases. Yeah, I would, I would really second that notion of touch. Touch is probably the most beautiful covert quality of the series. Uh, they are Warhol. Again and again in Warhol's work, you see this a presiding structure of repetition, but within that repetition is difference, and he attunes you to difference. Uh, uh, the difference in color and the difference in touch, and also the difference in the shadows, I think, too, uh, which look very similar to one another, but uh, there are two kinds of shadows that we see uh, in, in the exhibition. It's very interesting. Years ago, when the paintings were first shown at Dia in New York, uh, there was a, a funny article in uh, a magazine uh, edited by Gregory Badcock, and he walked around through the crowd at the opening, and he said, what do you think? And they all said, well, they're all the same. There's nothing to see here. And Robert Rosenblum, the art historian, said, well, that's what I like about them, is they're all the same. That way I can keep them in my mind uh, and always remember them. But of course, as Jessica was saying, they're not at all the same. And the more you see them, the more difference I think you do see. Um, now, Shadows incorporates 102 paintings in all, right? And how many of them are on view in your installation? We have 48 on view in the space that we're currently showing them in on uh, 39th Street. Did you extract a specific sequence or did you pick and choose which ones to show? So this is always um, a, a great subject with showing the shadows, um, yeah. sort of how does that sequence come about? Uh, I'm sure Neil has a lot to say about that too. We have generally stuck to a sequence that was established quite some years ago now when the works were first shown in uh, New York City in the 1990s. Um, and that sequence is followed more or less in the space that we're showing them now, although um, Courtney Martin, our chief curator, made a few adjustments partly to bring in um, some very unique colors or one unique color in particular. And of course, thinking about the individual walls of the space, how one sees the sequence of paintings within this particular environment itself. So um, the answer is both yes and no as to <laughs> whether it's the same sequence. Yeah, I, I think thinking about the paintings, one of the first things you think about is what's the right sequence? What was Warhol's sequence? What did he set up? And characteristically for Andy Warhol, it's a very open series. It's a very open sequence. Uh, when they were first shown uh, at uh, the Lone Star Foundation, the predecessor to the Dia Art Foundation, uh, the paintings were arranged by art handlers and his assistants in the gallery, and he made a few adjustments to them. So he was more or less engaged with the sequence at that time. And then over the years, uh, the sequence has changed depending on how people remembered the original sequence, the degree to which it was recorded, and it was possible to reconstruct this sequence, and the degree to which people were interested in maintaining that sequence. And I think 
what's wonderful is how they do change, like a performance. I mean, we need to think of them as paintings in space, and they have a, a different spatial presence each with each time they're exhibited. And I've counted, Jessica, 13. This is the 13th iteration or 13th exhibition of The Shadows. So they've been seen 13 times in 13 different ways up to now. For Warhol, what was the inspiration for Shadows? Let me let me try to address that. It's a long uh, story in some ways, but the shadow was very much, or shadows were very much on his mind. But probably we can go back to a series of still life paintings. Uh, we know Warhol for doing pop objects and pop uh, presenting pop culture, but he did beginning in 1975. He published his first book called The Philosophy of Andy Warhol, from A to B and back again. And when the book was published in the true Warholian economy of his studio, he told his studio assistant, do something with it. So the studio assistant took it, set it up in a series of tableaus, made a series of still lifes with them, and shot them in high contrast because he knew Warhol was interested in the cast shadows of these objects. This series was followed by two more series of still life subjects with cast shadows. Most strikingly, the hammer and sickle uh, uh, series, where you have a hammer, a sickle, and the shadow of the hammer and the sickle. And as you look through the series, you realize he was as interested in the shadows as he was in the objects, and sometimes they overwhelm them. This is two years before he begins the shadows. So the shadows is occupying him as a subject, uh, and he identified with the idea of the shadow uh, very much throughout his career. I've read that he began with a photograph. Um, can you describe his creative process? Yeah, Warhol, uh, beginning in 1962, Warhol consistently worked with photographs. Not always. In fact, he had done a series just at the same time. He was working on a series of oxidation paintings, which were paintings made with urine uh, directly on canvas or directly on copper, which would oxidize, which had no photographs. But this was a great departure, a radical departure in his work. Uh, usually he worked with a photograph. So there would be a photograph that would generate a silkscreen. It would be photomechanically reproduced. And that would uh, produce the image in the painting. Uh, and every painting would have its silkscreen, which would be superimposed over a painted ground. He would use the uh, image sometimes to lay in a sort of uh, sketch uh, underdrawing of his painting. So the painting... What's wonderful is Warhol reverses all the protocols. He paints first, and then the drawing la layer, basically, the photographic layer, the shadow, goes over the paint, uh, sort of the exact opposite of what you would expect. What's marvelous about the shadows is we know more or less what he photographed, but we don't really know what's casting the shadow, which makes them that much more mysterious. We know what's casting the shadow in the hammer and sickle paintings. We don't know what's casting the shadow in the shadows paintings. And how did he apply the color? Lots of different ways. Uh, with a paintbrush, 
um, using it very flat, so it looked like his pop paintings, what he called his hard style. Sometimes not at all, just having the image printed on primer. Uh, sometimes, most strikingly, I think in, in this series, is a sponge mop. Uh, he started using a sponge mop about two years before. He sent one of his helpers to Mays, which was a, an inexpensive department store in Union Square near his studio, and they acquired a series of uh, sponge mops. And he would pour the paint from his jars into a bucket and apply the backgrounds with the sponge mop. And we believe he also put another... Um, acrylic medium in with his paints to both extend the paint and thicken the paints so they have this great touch texture and that's one of the joys of these paintings is the touch uh, which of course is done with a not by hand so the whole idea of touch is displaced is extended is exaggerated is uh, rethought completely but I think that's really, um, for those who, who've never seen The Shadows and perhaps only seen reproductions, that's mm. probably the most striking and surprising part of this is that the paintings are unbelievably individually characterized with this sort of very expressionistic painting underneath them. Although, as Neil says, in some cases, a very um, flat monotone surface. But those that have this sort of very painterly surface, they're pools of paint on the surface. It's really, um, you know, very animated. And each individual panel, of course, quite unlike the one next to it. So despite the use of serial repetition, it's actually a handmade method. Absolutely, mm, yes. Very much so. Um, I hear he once referred to shadows as disco decor. Was he serious? You no, know, I think um, that, was, that was a comment that, that was also partly related to the opening of the project in uh, the original space that we, we still own on uh, West Broadway, which is now the home of the Broken Kilometer. And he was talking about the, the opening party. Um, of course, these are the days of Interview Magazine as well. And there were shoots that took place, in fact, and in, in, within that exhibition itself, fashion shoots that took place. So I think there was a sense in which it was an environment, which it really is. And you still feel that to this day. I mean, there's a, a kind of animation to that environment. And of course, um, one of the obvious ways in which you can think about it is its relationship to film. Um, but there's a sense in which a kind of color and light environment is changing around you as you move around the piece itself. So I think, you know, it's not entirely um, a flippant comment. It's, it's definitely, you know, it's a very specific space to be in. And I think he, on this, this sort of first occasion of, um, of showing them in, in Soho, played up the, the kind of animation of that space. Neil was describing um, to us this week how uh, Warhol would come down every weekend and sign copies of Interview magazine <laughs> in the space. So it was, it was, you know, it was a, it was a lively, active environment. Yeah, I, I think stressing the sense of he used the word decor, but it's an environmental work. It's an immersive work, uh, and that's the. I think when he said it's disco to. Decor. I think he was he was very serious. Actually, I mean, on one level, it's so typically quintessentially Warholian. In so far as he used every opportunity to sort of deflect attention from his seriousness, he wanted people to think, "Oh, he wasn't so serious," or he wanted them to question, "How serious is he?" But on the other hand, I take it very seriously because I see it as um, an immersive environment like disco was. And remember, disco is at its heyday in 1979 when he says that Studio 54, uh, in Paris, the set where he used to go uh, and hang out. And it was both a social space, but it was also a space that overwhelmed you, that took you in where you would maybe lose yourself. 
Backing up just a bit, um, Neil, your catalog resume provides a comprehensive record of Warhol's entire body of work. I mean, I've seen it estimated at maybe 18,000 pieces. Yeah, um, well, let's, let's parse that just a little bit if we might. Uh, there are, the catalog resume is covering both paintings, sculpture, and drawings, the traditional media. Warhol, as we all know, made films, did video, uh, published, wrote, uh, so we're dealing with uh, uh, these three branches of the traditional media. We estimate that there are about 8,000 paintings. Uh, we're about halfway through documenting and publishing the corpus of those 8,000 paintings, which is quite large in and of itself. He also began his career drawing, and he drew constantly. He didn't draw for 10 years, very interestingly, when he started photo, when he started using the photograph in 1962. He began a decade later to draw again, and it was as if he never stopped. He was a master draftsman. He drew constantly. Drawing was both something he could use to create silk screens, but it was also something he just clearly loved to do. So we imagine there, we, we've got about 10, We've documented about 10,000 uh, drawings so far. So when we say 18,000, that's a good number. Uh, but that would be drawings and paintings. I see. Um, how would you say Shadows relates to the rest of his output, like the silk screens or the films, etc.? I would say it both does and it doesn't. Uh, people talk about them as abstract. Uh, and in that way, they stand apart because there's not really a recognizable image in the painting. We always think of Warhol's work in terms of the image. And there are bodies of, you could call them abstract paintings or paintings that approach abstraction like the shadows because they're not really abstract. They're really about representation, I think. They're about this shadow that designates a representation of an object of course, an unknown object in this case. So that makes him more mysterious, more abstract, if you will. Warhol was involved with abstraction and was fascinated by abstraction. Remember, he moved to New York in the 40s at the heyday of abstract expressionism and saw abstract painting constantly in the galleries. He couldn't have missed seeing Pollock's shows. He couldn't have missed seeing de Kooning. He spoke about de Kooning and Pollock all the time. When he started painting in a more painterly manner, like the mop, brushstrokes. He said, I'm painting the way de Kooning paints now. And when he made the oxidation paintings, he referenced Pollock. He was very much thinking about Pollock. He owned works by these artists as well. He really cared about them. So in that way, they're very characteristic, but they're also quite distinct uh, insofar as we don't see what we expect a Warhol to look like, uh, apart from the media, I think. Though I think um, yeah. perhaps one of the things that's very unique about this, although we simply are not able to see it with other series of, of paintings, is that, of course, the unusual aspect of this work is that it was kept together. So mm, even though, absolutely. of course, one might be able to recreate a room of skulls or go back to a sequence of Elvis paintings, it's extremely difficult now, if not, in fact, impossible for a variety of reasons, but mainly because they were never kept together as a group. And so... I find absolutely fascinating with this work is that you're really able to immerse yourself in the way in which he worked, which was this sort of endless uh, difference within seriality. Um, a print exhibition that I saw recently of, of Warhol's printmaking, um, where 
the person who had collected this work had collected every single variety of print of, say, the Marilyn or um, camouflage, but it made one realize the degree to which he exhausted this motif mm. um, and the degree to which we actually quite often only see one or two of those um, images repeated over and over again when, in fact, actually there's this incredible sort of, I mean, obsessive sort of and masterful play of color um, and I think, you know, with shadows, we have this very unique opportunity to actually see the, the way in which he approached a, an idea, a concept, a motif, a, an image um, in one work. And most of his series have been split up and sold to different buyers. Exactly. Yes. And, so, and yeah, and I would give great credit, I must say, to one of our founders, Heine Friedrich, for having the, the foresight to think about keeping these bodies of work together, because really that's where you, you encounter, I would say, the genius of, of Warhol. And something also that I think he cared very much about, uh, which was when he painted, he wanted to cover the wall. And when he made sculpture, he wanted to fill the space. When he showed his box sculptures in 1964, for example, it's in a gallery, he filled the room. You couldn't walk into the room. It was literally occluded by these boxes, uh, except for one room where you could walk in, but you had to thread your way through it. So the sculpture became a sort of obstacle in the space. I think he cared passionately about his films are that way too about filling time about filling space about covering the wall and this is one of the unique this is probably the unique opportunity to see it a work as he would have made it conceived it as he would have loved to have seen it which is interesting too neil because of course it's the opposite of this idea of the the short attention span the 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 quick moment in fact it's all about duration it's all about a, oh, a kind absolutely. of on and on and on, endless kind of um, dwelling on on one subject, one form, but then within that, realizing that there's infinite potential within the one motif. Mm. Do you see it as cin- cinematic? Absolutely, yes, mm-hmm. yes. I mean, it's a you know, I think in the ideal environment, you're you're moving around and around that piece um, with with this kind of flash of color and change and form. So it has the scale of the movies. Uh, it has the, um, I hate to go back that word, but you get lost in it again, like you do in the movies. Mm-hmm. And it has that sort of, even the shadow itself has that kind of flickering quality that uh, seems cinematic. There was, when the, the, the work was first shown, uh, there was to great perplexity, I might add. One critic who was a film critic in Art Forum uh, wrote about them in terms of the movies. And I think she was the first person to really get them. Uh, and she had this great line. She said there's a, she was thinking of Antonioni's movie Blow Up, where there was a detail that was enlarged to huge scale. And she said there was an air of blow up-like criminality to the paintings. And I love that. Uh, I, every time I see the paintings, I think of that. The Warhol Show at the Whitney makes the argument that his work after the 1960s fully measures up to what came before. Um, that essentially his creativity remained undimmed through the 70s and 80s. Would you agree with that? And do you think Shadows sort of reinforces that idea? I I think that's undoubtedly true. I think um, mm-hmm. there's also, you know, the, the very important way in which his work is entering into other media, whether it's television, um, obviously with Interview Magazine, you know, it's an unbelievably productive period of time in his work. And I think probably incredibly influential for so many artists subsequently. Um, early work as well, of course, but I think actually this movement into a kind of larger sphere, 
in a very conscious, very deliberate way is something that is, um, you know, absolutely essential, really, for so many generations of artists who came afterwards. Not to mention, as Neil has been re- referring to, I mean, these sort of deviations from perhaps what we might have thought of the norm of, of how he was producing work, mm-hmm. the collaborations or the, the sort of more more ostentatious collaborations. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um I think there was this, uh, at a certain point, it still exists that after 1968, when Warhol was shot, he ceased to become, uh, an interesting artist, an important artist, a good artist. Uh, and in part, it's, it's a sort of guilt by association. Uh, he was hanging out with society. He was doing portraits. A year after the shadows were shown, there was a show of his portraits, uh, at the Whitney Museum. Uh, it was a brilliant show, actually. Uh, it got very good reviews, in fact. Uh, and the Mao paintings were shown with them, his portraits of Mao Zedong, three giant paintings in a, in a sort of pavilion surrounded by so-called society portraits. Uh, so there was this notion that um, prevailed for the longest time that after 1968, Warhol wasn't really a very interesting artist. But I think... Uh, just even to confine oneself to painting beyond the other media that he brilliantly branched out into. Uh, as a painter, he never loses his sense of invention, recreation, uh, and total exploration and uh, interrogation of the medium. Uh, it keeps, it's, when we work in a catalog resume, this is just amazing because you think, oh, when we started working on the Mao paintings, we thought, oh, we can't wait to get to the Maos. Now I'm actually researching the shadows, but we're just fascinated by all the problems and qualities and characteristics of the shadows. Uh, he's a very engaged artist throughout his career, and I think the work speaks for itself. Uh, the shadows make a huge argument. I think it'll be wonderful to see the Whitney retrospective. I know some of the later work coming in there, but in light of uh, what we'll see at the Whitney. That conversation between the shadows and the, his other work at the Whitney will be fascinating. Absolutely. Um, but I, I think another part of this um, is printmaking. I mean, when you look oh, yes. at the, the Ladies and Gentlemen series, I mean, they are, you know, a, a lesson in, uh, you know, technique, uh, experiment. I mean, they are extraordinary works just as a, a um, tech, yes, a technical achievement. I mean, they're, they're astounding. So I think to go back and actually look at his work from the perspective of making, um, rather than becoming so um, lost in the subject matter, perhaps, although it's always this kind of um, contradictory and, and, and sort of the tension between the subject matter mm-hmm. and the, the process, of course. But uh, I think it will be very interesting for people to think about him as um, as, as a maker, as an as a artist who had such an incredible um, skill in so many different techniques. Well, thank you, Jessica and Neil. Thank you Welcome. so much. It was a pleasure. Andy Warhol Shadows is at 205 West 39th Street in New York until the 15th of December. Andy Warhol from A to B and back again is at the Whitney Museum, New York from the 12th of November until the 31st of March next year. And that's all from this two-part podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you're on Twitter, follow us at Tan Audio. You can also follow us on our main Twitter account and Facebook at The Art Newspaper. And on Instagram, you can find us at theartnewspaper.official. Thanks to Nancy, to Jessica and Neil, to Jeremy and to you for listening. See you next week.
The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com.